you remain standing, you can grab your Bibles and turn to Revelation 17. Uh, we come to study this entire chapter tonight. It's a chapter, children, that I want you to pay attention to somewhere along the middle of this reading as we just sang about the great mystery that has been revealed in Jesus Christ. And you're going to see tonight that the angel brings to John's attention in his great apocalypse yet another mystery that he's intending to reveal. But I would imagine as we read of this mystery, it might feel a little bit more mysterious in many ways about the great prostitute and the beasts. Let me read all 18 verses for us and then pray for God's blessing and we'll begin. So listen now as as God speaks to us once again through his word. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, and I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. He carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of a mystery, Babylon the Great. Mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with her seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was not and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind of wisdom. Seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not... It is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is the Lord of lords and king of kings. And those with him are called... And chosen and faithful. Then the angel said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. The ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire, for God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray once again. 
Oh, Father, we do ask that you would give us the wisdom for which this text calls, that we might understand not only the mystery of Christ, but the mystery of your sovereignty and your ways in the world as you call us to live as faithful citizens, looking forward to that heavenly city that is above. Uh, do strengthen us then, even in this very hour, by your word and spirit, that we might grow in grace, that we might grow in perseverance, that we might abound in obedience and trust before you always looking for the return of Jesus Christ, for which you would hasten its coming, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Church historians and, in many ways, theologians have agreed that the greatest Christian thinker ever since the time of the apostles is a man named Augustine or Augustine. And it was in AD 426 that he published one of his largest works, which was titled The City of God. And it was a book that, as best we can tell, he had begun at least over a decade before, uh, probably just coming out of the sack of Rome in AD 410. So if you were Augustine at the time, you had grown up in a world in which the Roman Empire was the all-powerful, consuming, authoritative body in the world. For a thousand years, it had ruled the Mediterranean. For over 800 years... Its city walls had never been breached. And then in 410, it was sacked by the vandals. And Augustine began to think about what this meant, not only for his life, but for the church as well. And so he took his pen to paper, as he was prone to do, and just began to write and and write and write. And he talked about the normal criticisms that were lodged against Christianity at the time and the various misunderstandings that belonged to the church at the time. And he assessed human history and came down to a variety of different conclusions, the most central of which was, uh, you can really tell the story of human history as nothing more than this ongoing conflict between what he called the heavenly city and the earthly city, or what we might call the city of God and the city of man. And it's a conflict that has its clear roots in not only Scripture as a whole, but certainly Revelation. Because, kids, what I want you to understand for the next two weeks, what we are looking at is in every way Revelation's discussion and even its portrayal and proclamation of the eventual defeat of the city of man before we turn our attention to the city of God at the end of this book. So, therefore, in the coming weeks, students, what you want to do is ask in and answer the question, to which city do I belong? Now, to give you an idea of exactly how this is working out in Revelation, just glance down again at verse 1 of chapter 17, where John says, Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls, came and said to me, Come. Now, if you hold your finger there and flip forward to Revelation chapter 21 and verse 9. You see, John says almost the exact same thing. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, spoke to me saying, come. So you have then for the next few chapters, you have John giving us in his apocalypse the prostitute before he turns his attention to the bride of Jesus Christ. Or said more acutely, when it comes to the city of man and the city of God, you have tonight and next week's talking about Babylon before he gives his attention to the heavenly Jerusalem that is above. And so chapter 17, it's largely dealing with the features that belong to this great city. And then it focuses next week, Lord willing, in chapter 18 on the fall 
of Babylon. And so if you weren't with us last week, we glanced through the end of chapter 16 where we saw at long last the seventh angel came pouring forth the seventh bowl of judgment, God's wrath on the world. And if you glance back up to chapter 16 verse 17, you'll see that the voice from the throne, surely God himself cried out after this bowl was poured forth, it is done. Wrath has been poured out. My purposes and decrees have been accomplished. But look at the subject of the seventh bowl, according to verse 19. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Therefore, this week and next week and these two chapters of 17 and 18, we're thinking about Babylon, the great sin city in the world, what it is to be included among the city of man. And so I want you to see tonight just two simple things as we go about our study today is not just the sinfulness of this city, but also the safety that belongs to God's people. And really, I'm just going to walk through it in four parts. Some of them will overlap because it's the way the text continues. I want you to see, first of all, the apostles' summons before we think about the city's strategy and support, and then we conclude with the church's safety. So the apostles' summons, again, verse 1 tells us, This angel came to John and said, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. Now, you don't have to wonder who this prostitute is. You know, kids and students, remember when you come to Revelation, you're not meant to take these somewhat bewildering images, literally. They're symbolic representations of spiritual realities. And we know, by the end of this chapter, who this prostitute is. Just skip down to verse 18, where the angel tells John, And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. But then, if you glance back up to verse 5, we get even more truth about this woman. On her forehead was written the name of mystery, Babylon the great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. So then in the course of this chapter, when you're speaking about the prostitute, Babylon, or the great city, it's all talking about the same person. Perhaps better said, it's the same power. And of course, for the earliest readers and hearers of Revelation, the initial and immediate original reference would have been no doubt to the city of Rome for reasons we're going to mention in a few minutes. But for my own mind, and if you've been with us in our months of study of Revelation, you won't be surprised Uh, to hear me saying that I don't think it's just about only Rome, that it's depicting for us some type of pattern of governments and systems set up against God and ruling in the world. That's why even one New Testament commentator, I think, rightly says, the great city is every city and no city. This Babylon the great. It is a civilized man, mankind organized apart from God. It has its embodiment in every age. I think you're going to see that in the next few verses, how it is, this kind of cyclical reality of these worldwide governments that rise against Christianity in the church and work to war against God, and they come and they go and they come and they go and they come and they go, and eventually the last one will come, and it too will go. But you'll see, of course, verse 3 also tells us that the woman, this prostitute, is seated on many waters. Skip down to verse 15. We know what those waters are. The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes 
in nations and languages. Therefore, I think it is right for us to think about Babylon, the great city, the prostitute is nothing else other than the, the power that rules in the world. It's the world and all of its sin and opposition to God. And notice what verse 3 says about this summons. John says, this angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. We'll come back to those heads and horns, kids, in a, in a few minutes. But uh, what you want to see here is he, he's taken off into the wilderness. Which so often in Scripture, the wilderness is a place of judgment. It's a place of covenant cursing that this woman may appear beautiful. This woman may appear lovely, but she's actually found in the wilderness, the place where judgment tends to come. And if you glance through the first part of verse 4, you'll see she's clothed in these ostentatious garments. Uh, lovely clothing that would attract attention, even allure others' desires. But uh, kids, I want you to know less about what she's wearing and more so about what she's holding. Because look at the end of verse 4. Holding in her hand, she had a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. So consider the scene. If you were to look upon this woman in John's vision, she seems altogether attractive. And even in her hand, it's this golden cup which according to the customs of the time would have been altogether attractive itself. But what John is saying is, you know, it looks great from the outside. It looks enticing even from the outside. But if kids, you get up there closer and begin to, to stare into what's actually inside the cup, what you see is nothing more than gross idolatry and immorality. And isn't it always that way in the world with the Satan's power of temptation and sin, it seems all enticing, doesn't it, on the outside? This golden chalice that is alluring and attractive, but you get ever closer, and all it reveals is ugliness and vileness, abominations before the Lord. And so what you have here is in some way as the reverse of a story that you would find perhaps in the animated version of Snow White, where you have this wicked witch who's altogether beautiful, and you might know the story, she eventually drinks this potion, doesn't she, children? And She's turned into this ugly old hag. Uh, but here it's as though this woman, Babylon, the great city, the prostitute, is lovely on the outside. But actually on the inside, all it is, is nothing other than the ugliness and vileness of idolatry and immorality, of prostitution. She is the mother of earth's abominations. And so parents, you ought not to be surprised then that throughout the ages, and certainly in our age as well, no doubt, that it's not just an ordinary tactic of Satan to war against the church, tempting God's people unto idolatry, but of course even entire cultures to sexual immorality, to lead them astray, that it's not just false worship that will take them away from devotion to the Lord. It's the passions of the flesh that will lead them astray, and I'm sure you don't need me to tell you how prominent that is in our age, one of idolatry, immorality, our text, spiritual prostitution, but it's not just prostitution, it's also persecution. When seduction doesn't work, then the actual overt trial comes. Verse 6, and I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. By this point in Revelation, you're not surprised to hear John tell us or to see John tell us that he has this vision of someone 
or something representing a spiritual reality of satanic forces that strives against God's people to seduce them, to draw them away from their Lord. And when that doesn't work, well then, let's just take their blood to such a degree of ravenous desire that we want to be debauched and drunk on the blood of God's people. So idolatry, immorality, prostitution, persecution. This is John's summons. This is the city's strategy. But I want you to see now in the next part, the city's support. In verse 6 through 14. I was running earlier this week. I had downloaded one of those classes they call the Great Courses. And so I decided I was going to listen to a history of the Central Intelligence Agency in America. And it was altogether insightful. Some of you might know the story well enough, and you would go into a class or those lectures and think, yeah, you know, I've heard that before. Oh, I haven't heard that before. And a lot of the well-known or even lesser-known tales, the highs and lows of our nation's Central Intelligence Agency. But certainly in the mid to late 20th century, our nation, like pretty much every covert operation at the time, was always involved in these shadow supports and shadow operations of propping up these governments, these visible and public rulers and authorities throughout the world, providing the monies, providing the resources, providing the support. And when it comes to this prostitute to Babylon, the great city, what you need to see is it has satanic support behind it. Because, of course, verse 3 tells us that the woman is seated on the scarlet beast. We know by this point the beast represents in Revelation this anti-Christian government in the world. But I want you to see more about the support, the satanic trinity that is a parody in every way. Verse 8 We're told after John is marveling at this, and the angel says, well, I'll tell you what the mystery is all about. The beast that you saw was and is not, and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction, and the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. And that phrase, twice used in verse 8, it's, it's striking, isn't it? Who was and is not and is to come. Sounds a lot like phrases used already, isn't it, of the triune God in Revelation. Even consider back to the song of Revelation chapter 4. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So it is this kind of twofold mention of who was and is not and, and is to come. Well, it seems best to to understand it as this world power, Babylon, rising at times in persecution and prostitution, sometimes fading away. But surely again, it's going to rise up again as we are waiting for the Lord's return. So is the world always rising up against God's people, rising up and temptation against the church, rising up even to persecute the church. So the original readers of the time may have been thinking about, hey, the Emperor Nero has died, and it seems like we have a a little bit of a respite, but it's only soon enough that Domitian is going to come along and increase the persecution. Or perhaps you know of other times in church history where persecution rose, and then it seemed to have disappeared for a time, and then it rises again. And the beast is going to go to the place of destruction, We know its end, already hinted at there in verse 8, but notice what verse 9 through 13 tells us. Beginning of verse 9 says, this calls for a mind of wisdom. Now, any time that you see a phrase like that in apocalyptic literature, you know you're going to get bizarre and bewildering images to follow. As essentially a sanctified way of saying, now really pay attention. 
You need discernment to figure out what follows. And we really don't have the time to get into what follows and figure it out. Uh, Many scholars in Revelation would call these verses some of the most perplexing and mysterious in a book full of perplexing uh, mysteries. But you can see even in verse 9 that it speaks of the seven heads on this woman or seven mountains, which surely original readers would have taken as a reference to Rome because it was known as the city on seven hills or the city set by seven mountains. More mysterious is these ten horns that represent ten kings, which seems to be language from Daniel chapter 7, which speaks about these ten kings, these empires that are leading up to the Roman Empire, and there's no small number of opinions on exactly how you can chronologically put these ten kings together to get to the beast, to get to the end design of these ten kings. Some would see it as all preceding the Roman Empire and its eventual destruction. Some would see it, of course, as all leading up to the end of the age, so none of these kings have actually come, that they're going to war together, band together, unite together at the end of the age against the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm more content to take them as these kind of cyclical realities that belongs to human history between Christ's ascension to the Father's right hand and his coming again from the Father's right hand. But just notice verse 13. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. Surely you know that few things unite opposing ideologies, philosophies, governments, and authorities as opposition to Christianity does. You may have nothing in common, one country to the next, one ruler to the next, one power to the next, but you can all hate God's people, gather to war against God's people, which is exactly what happens in verse 14, taking us from the city's support, which of course is satanic support, to the church's safety. Like many of you, I've wondered in recent days, even coming down earlier this week on Monday, working upstairs, and I came down to see what was going on, and I told one of my kids, hey, did you move us to Seattle overnight? Because yet again, it was raining, and, and raining a lot, and we've had all of these thunderstorms and rain, record rainfall, certainly where I live in the month of May, and we've had a few of those thunderstorms that seem to just hover right above the house, and you'd have these lightning flashes that would break forth through the night with rays of brilliance, and sometimes these roars of thunder that would seem as though that the Lord was deciding to use our roof as a kick drum. And Whenever that would happen and the kids would be awake, you would notice our younger children doing something altogether predictable, as when the thunder would roar forth, they would race to our side. If we're seated at the couch, you want to sit there. If we're standing up, they want to hug our legs because it's there amidst the storm, that they find safety. And if we're rightly understanding, I think the prostitute is Babylon, the great city, this world power that's always striving against the church with satanic support. We should ask the question of how are we going to be safe in the midst of that satanic storm? I want you to notice two final things as we begin to close from our final verses. Safety comes from God's sovereignty. That's what you need to see in the last few verses. First of all, you will be safe according to God's sovereign power. Verse 14, these powers will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. 
For he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. So great words, aren't they, to examine your heart on this evening? Am I called? Am I chosen? Am I faithful? And you are all three of those things, if you've come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, you are called, you are chosen, you are faithful in light of verse 14. You are victorious, will be victorious. Because no matter the storms that present themselves to the church, no matter Satan's rage against God's people, the truth of this text is now, always, and forever, the Lamb will win. So you will be safe according to God's sovereign power. It's not just a future reality, though, in this text. It's also a present reality. You are safe. Secondly, finally, you are safe according to God's sovereign purpose. Because if you just glance down at verse 15, we're finding out who these symbols represent. Verse 16 mysteriously says, The ten horns that you saw, they and the beast, will hate the prostitute. This imperial power seemingly to turn and devour almost in a cannibalistic way. These hedonist and pleasure-filled sources they have used, and they will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. And you see in verse 17, this is all by sovereign design. For, verse 17 God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. So verse 14 is speaking of the final fulfillment of God's sovereignty. Verse 17 is speaking about the current ongoing realities of God's sovereignty. That no matter where you find yourself, whatever situation or circumstance, Whatever affliction or hardship, persecution or opposition, you can count on the truth that God has decreed that it would happen. And you can count on the truth that he has decreed it will happen for your good. And you can count on the truth he has decreed it would happen so that you would learn to trust him. That he cares for you. He has decreed that it would happen so that you might know that he is working all things according to his purpose for you in Jesus Christ. And if you ever wanted to know the degree to which God has always controlled all things to bring about good, even from evil, similar language is used instead of Jesus Christ crucified on a cross according to the foreordained predestined plan of God. The apostles say in the book of Acts, sinful men crucified our Savior because he's always keeping his people safe as he's working things according to his sovereign purpose. He will keep his people safe according to the working of his sovereign power. No matter the beast that rises, no matter the prostitute that seduces, no matter the world power that seeks authority, you can find safety and surety in the arms of Christ, who is the Lamb, the Lord of lords and King of kings, who will conquer his and your great enemy. Let's pray together. Lord, we do pray that you would bless us in the midst of whatever hardship we find ourselves in, season of temptation against which we are struggling. We might know your power and purpose for us, your sovereign care and kindness within us by the provision of the Spirit to help us to war against 
of the raging demon that seeks to devour us with all humility and faithfulness as we cling to the Lamb who is our Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And we do pray all of these things according to His might and in His majestic name. Amen.